with you and see some familiar faces and see some new faces. So it's a joy to be here with you and open up God's Word. Uh, as you know, both campuses churchwide, we're walking through the book of Colossians in the New Testament. So if you want to grab a Bible and go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat when you came in. If you don't own one, you take that thing with you. That's our gift to you, a copy of God's Word, and the words are going to be on the screen in just a few minutes. But again, joy to be with you to walk through this great New Testament book of Colossians. So I thought I'd start out with maybe a little illustration so you kind of get to know uh, me a little bit and then kind of walk into Colossians chapter 2. But if you're here and you're a parent, uh, you will be able to relate to this illustration because parents have a keen sense or just this awareness when their kids are in trouble. If you're a parent at all, you, it's almost like this sixth sense, and you're ready to, to spring into action when you sense there's trouble with your kids. I have five kids. I, I feel like there's trouble going on all the time at my house. But a year and a half ago, we brought two more kids into our home. We brought two foster daughters into our home, and they're here with us this morning. You can meet them. Uh, but they came into our home not knowing how to swim. And we have a swimming pool at our house. So many kids, we just have a place for them to hang out and swim. So last summer, we walked them through swimming lessons and we're teaching them how to swim because we're really important, obviously, with a big old tub of water out in your yard. They need to learn how to swim if they're going to be out there. So we taught them through lessons and they got pretty comfortable. The older girl learned how to swim pretty quick. The younger girl did not know how to swim, but there was a problem. She thought she knew how to swim. Well, that's a problem. So we're out back one afternoon. I, I remember this one of those distinct moments as a parent in your mind. And we're all out there at the table. And we're, I think we're playing a card game or something like that. And Malia, the little one, decides she has to go to the bathroom. So she gets up from the table, walks around the backside of the pool and is headed into the house. And instead of going into the house, she takes a turn and starts walking on the other side of the pool. So we're on this side of the pool. And she's on this side of the pool. And I'm playing our game. And I'm watching. And I'm thinking... You know, she's just going to walk around, and then she's going to come on around the backside and maybe circle around, because she doesn't know how to swim, and surely she knows she doesn't know how to swim. So she literally walks along the side of the pool and comes up to the edge of it, and I'm watching this whole thing, and she stands right at the edge. Well, I'm getting real nervous as a parent. You all feel the tension as a parent. So she's standing there on the edge of the pool, we're on the other side, and I think she's going to turn around and keep on walking. Well, to my shock and horror... Here she is on the edge of the pool, the deep end. Boop, there she goes, right off in the water. And you're thinking, what did you do as a parent? Well, I got my cards and I kept on playing my card game. Well, of course not. You think, what's wrong with you, man? What do you think I did as a parent in that moment in probably less than three seconds? I'm up from the table, I spring around the back of the pool, and I'm in the water. With Malia, I get her up, I've got her on the side, she's been in the water maybe three seconds, but there was this, you feel that tension. Now that tension, I want you to hold on to that for a minute, because it's the tension of a parent who feels that one of their kids is at risk. Now when you come to the book of Colossians, particularly chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people at the church at Colossia, and there is risk. There's a threat in their lives. Now, Paul knows about this threat, and he's writing this letter to this church. He knows about the threat because a man named Epaphras 
has traveled 1,200 miles to Paul, who's in prison in Rome, and said, Paul, things are going pretty good at the church at Colossia, but there's some dangers there. There's some threats. And you can just imagine the dialogue. Paul's like, okay, what are the threats that are going on? And Epaphras gives him a report. He says, Paul, there's some men that have come into the church, and they're teaching things that sound really good, but they're just not true. And the people in the church are starting to latch onto these things and they're starting to hold onto these things and they're starting to believe that Jesus Christ is not completely sufficient. They're starting to buy into these lies that it's Jesus plus all these works and all this man-made religion and all this stuff you've got to do. And these people are starting to buy into this, Paul. Paul, you've got to do something. And Paul says, well, I've been chained, so I can't go there. He says, I'm going to write a letter. And under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul sits down and pens a letter back to the church at Colossae. He gives it to Epaphras. Epaphras travels back over a thousand miles and comes to the church at Colossae. And I just imagine the morning that Epaphras got there, the church is gathered, and he would stand up and read this entire letter to the church. Now, we're not going to do that this morning, but we're reading a portion of that letter. Paul is writing to a group of people, and he knows there's risks and threats. He's going to identify those threats. He's going to deal with those threats. And he's going to try to help them not to be ensnared or like Malia falling into that pool. Not to keep them from the danger that's there. Listen, let's all agree with something this morning based on the truth of Scripture. And I'm speaking primarily to those of you who know Christ and who are believers. You have an enemy. And your enemy is probably not going to be active in your life in some supernatural, incredible way where he stands before you with a red suit and a pitchfork. But here's what he will do. He will ever so subtly try to distract you from who Jesus is and what Christ has done in your life. And he will try to deceive you to believe that Jesus Christ really is enough. And Jesus Christ really is sufficient. And His Word really is enough. And Christ has done everything necessary for you to be right with God in the cross and resurrection. That's what Paul's writing about here. So Colossians chapter 2, go ahead and look there. I'm going to review just a little bit from last week. I know Derek walked through chapter 2 up through verse 16. But Paul writes, he starts out the chapter and he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. This is like a coach writing to a team. And he's saying, I want, you, I, want you, I want you folks to know I'm struggling on your behalf. The struggle Paul's talking about is not just mere worry. It's not just empty anxiety. Paul has this deep concern that they would grow and advance in their relationship with Christ. Again, you ever been a coach? You ever been a parent? You've ever worked with people? You, you know what it's like to have this desire for people to advance or take the next step or not be caught and regress or going backwards. Paul says, I want you to be growing. I want you to be advancing in all that Christ is and all that Christ has for you. And I'm convinced that the majority of believers, often myself, we merely skim the surface of all that Christ is and all that Christ has for us. And what it means that Christ is in us and we're in Christ and all the riches that He has and all that we are by nature of the cross. Paul writes in verse 2, he says, I I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want you to be knit together in love. I want you to reach to all the full assurance of understanding. I want you to know all that is yours in Christ. 
all that is true of you right now. And then you continue on down through the letter and you kind of have to scratch your head and you go, okay, Paul, why are you, why are you saying all this here? Like I said earlier, Paul makes it very clear why he's writing this chapter. Very applicable to you and me. Verse 4, he says this. He says, I'm telling you this. Here's why I'm writing. He said, I'm telling you this, that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Paul's writing that because he knows some guys have snuck in and they're telling these well-crafted arguments and people are being duped. The word deceive literally means to conclude wrongly or to lead somebody to false reasoning. To lead you down a path of thinking that's simply not true. And he says with well-crafted arguments. Well-crafted arguments mean to talk somebody into something. It's like an infomercial. You, you've been up maybe on TV at, late at night. you got an infomercial telling you, man, you buy, this, you buy this knife to chop these onions and it'll change your life. The most incredible onion chopping knife in the world. you got to have it. We kind of chuckle and we've seen that, but that's the same word here. Well-crafted arguments intended to talk you into something that's not true. That's what was going on at the church at Colossae. Paul wants to expose these well-crafted arguments. He's speaking to believers. He's reminding them of a common strategy of our enemy. Listen, I, I wrote down this little note this week for me and for you, maybe just to think about this. Greater damage has been done historically to believers by subtle distractions more than onward frontal attacks. In other words, the enemy's M.O. most of the time in your life and my life is not this full frontal attack where we're able to go, that's the enemy. It's subtle distractions and little deceptions that we bite into step by step, piece by piece. That's what's going on here. So Paul says this, he goes on verse 8. This is just a little bit of review for you really quick. He uses even harsher language in verse 8. He says, see to it. If you have a different translation, the words beware. Hey, wake up. See to it that no one takes you captive. The word captive is even a stronger word. It's to carry off like a kidnapper. It's to be led astray. What's going on at Colossians, I just want to heighten your sense to this this morning. What Paul is writing about is not just a difference of opinion. He's not saying, okay, these guys believe this and we believe that. We've got to figure out what. No, these are guys that are suddenly coming in and trying to lead the believers astray and to lead them to no longer be walking with Christ, to be believing a lie. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul says, listen, there are some threats. He's going to identify four of these threats. I'm going to identify four. One you talked about last week. We're going to talk about the last three very quickly this morning. These are very active threats in your life and my life today. And when we buy into these threats, when I buy into these threats, it's not merely a difference of opinion. It is the difference between walking in freedom and victory and joy in Christ and being led off to deception and lie and bondage. Let's get real practical to some of us this morning. Some of you are here and you are struggling deeply in your walk with the Lord. Some of you are here and you don't know Christ yet. You're considering all of what this means. Either way, some of you are here and you are struggling deeply because, very simply, you're buying into a lie. You're buying into a lie. 
The enemy's greatest tool in your life and my life is things that absolutely are not true. And we buy into them and we begin thinking that way. Lies about God, lies about ourselves, lies about each other, lies about the gospel, lies about the world, whatever it is. That's his main M.O. is lies. So Paul writes, he identifies four different threats to the church at Colossae. The first one was human philosophy. You talked about that last week. He identifies legalism. We're going to talk about that really quick. Asceticism. What in the world is that? We'll talk about that in a minute. And then mysticism. There are four different things that begin to subtly creep into the church and begin to lead the believers into bondage instead of freedom. Let's talk about each one quickly. Number one, human philosophy. Paul says, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deception. See to it. Wake up that you do not buy in to the systems of belief that are merely human philosophy. Now, Derek talked about this last week. I'm not going to talk about this very much, just by review. What is the idea of philosophy? What does this mean? When that day there was an incredible love of wisdom, there was this love of knowing. I got to know more. I got to know more. I got to know more. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Problem was, here's what they pursued. The philosophy that Paul's talking about here is more than just an academic pursuit. It is well developed theories about God, about man, about the world, about the meaning of it all, about why we're here, about where we're going, about why I even exist. If you're here, which you are. And if you're breathing, meaning you're alive, that means you have the Spirit of God. That means you're created in the image of God. And by nature of having the image of God, here's what that means. You at times ask why questions. Or what questions. Or how does it all fit together. Or what's my place. Or where's this going. Or we've all wrestled with the idea of what's my purpose. And and what does it all mean. And you get that. We ask that because God has put eternity in our heart. To a degree, all of us are philosophers. We try to form a worldview of, okay, how does God fit in? And how do I fit in? And how do I fit in this world? That's what was going on here. The, Paul says there are human philosophies, these well-developed theories about God, about man, about the world, and all that. He said they originate as traditions of men. They come up out of faulty, limited reasoning of man. Now, here's how that applies to you and me today. Again, very quickly, and we'll move on to the next one. You just got to know, folks, you are surrounded by human philosophy and lies a whole lot more than you hear the truth. And whether it's from the media or whether it's from so-called Christian books or whether it's from a lot of different sources, they want to tell you, okay, here's how you relate to God. Here's how you relate to each other. Here's what it all means. Here's our place in the world. Here's how you relate. You're really the center of the world. It's really all about you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Paul says, listen, there's nothing wrong with philosophy. I studied philosophy when I was in college. There's no, nothing wrong with wanting to ask why and find the answers. Paul says, listen, you can find the answers. From limited, finite, faulty human reasoning. Or you can go to the living word of God from the God who made it all. Who is infinite in his understanding. And get the answers from him. It's a decision we make. One leads us into bondage. The other leads us into freedom. So Paul continues to write this letter. and He says, listen, if you want to know the truth, the truth is in Christ. He says, all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. 
He said, all the fullness of the mysteries of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. The lie of the Colossian church was Jesus is not enough. You got to look outside of Christ. You got to look to all the Stoics and all the philosophers and all these understandings of all that these men are saying. If you're really going to understand the world. And Paul says, stop. As believers, you have Christ and in Christ is all the mysteries of the world and the universe. He's the one that created it all. He's the one that holds it all together. He's given you a revelation from God in the scripture. Here we find the answers and understanding of even how it all works and fits together. And what's my place in it and where is it going? He says Christ and his word lead you to the answers you're looking for. So beware of human philosophy that can enslave us. Now, number two, all that is just review. (laughs) Y'all are not laughing. Come on. All right, I'm going to give you three more threats really quick. Paul talks about here. Threat number two is this. Every believer is threatened at one time or another by the threat of something called legalism. Now, what is that? Paul mentions it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul's referring to something here that I've grown up in the South. You've grown up in the South. Many of you, we, we know a lot about this in religious culture. He's referring to something here that we can call legalism. And legalism can be defined as this. It's the idea that law-keeping, performance, earning is the ground of my relationship with God. What was happening here in the Colossian church is these false teachers were suddenly coming in and, and they were saying things like this. Okay. Man, it's awesome that you believe in Christ and the cross and all of that, but, but you've got to understand, there, there, there's more to it. There's more. If you, if you really want to be right with God, you can't abandon I mean, all these dietary laws that are in the Old Testament about what you can eat, what you can't eat, and there's things we're to do and not do. He said there's all these festivals, he says. There's a new moons and Sabbaths and all these different things. There's festivals and new moons. There's food and drink. All these Passover celebrations, all these different things. In other words, he says, okay, believing in Jesus is great. If you really want to be right with God, you've got to understand, there's a lot more that you've got to achieve and perform and do if you're really going to be right with God. And, and, And the freedom that these believers experienced in Christ and the assurance that was in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the standing that we have by uh, before God in Christ begin to be threatened and they begin to be unstable and shaken because they realize okay man I'm going to trust Jesus and I've got to keep this Old Testament ordinance and I've got to follow this festival and I've got to do this event and I've got to keep this Passover and I can't eat this and I can't eat that and pretty soon watch this their freedom became bondage bondage now some of you felt that way before some of you've experienced that before these guys were coming in and they were they were going to these believers and they were saying listen I'm so excited about your freedom but listen you're not right with God you haven't kept a Passover You haven't followed the dietary laws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the church, great trouble began to come to the church. Now listen, does that go on today? Sure does. 
What does it look like today? What, what, what does it look like today? Well, let me give you a few examples here. What's the problem with legalism? Legalism, again, can be defined as it's the idea of the human achievement is how we earn our standing before God. It's the idea that God is totally satisfied and God totally accepts me partly in Christ and partly by my performance. Man, that creeps in. Here's the problem with that. Number one, let me give you a few problems biblically with this thing we call legalism. Number one, it is completely unbiblical. (laughs) What do you mean, Pastor Mike? You can write this down. I'm not sure this will be on the screen or not. Romans 3.20 says this. It says, Because by the works of the law, or my performance, or my rule-keeping, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, there's not a single person on the planet who... God has ever looked down and gone, man, you've got it all together. Come on. None of them. All that was written in the Old Testament, all that law, all that had a place. And Paul's going to explain it. It was to make us aware of our emptiness apart from Christ. But it was to push us to the person of Christ. I'm empty. I can't hold it together. I'm broken. I'm faulty. I'm sinful. Christ is the only answer. And here these guys were trying to come in and say, all right. Jesus is good and great and all, but He's not enough. That's not the gospel. You and I, if you've placed faith in Christ, if you are believing in the person of Christ, you have perfect standing before God right now because of Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. That's it. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. It's Christ. They were trying to add to it and simply say, hey, Jesus is not sufficient. That's not the message of the Bible. First, it's unbiblical. Secondly, it's merely external. It's merely external. It's making our relationship with God merely external performance in what I do or what I don't do. And here's the problem with relegating a dynamic relationship with God to externals. People can adhere to externals. And can be deceived to think that they have transformation because they adhere to externals. For example, you walk in, you say, hey, would you like to know Christ? Great. Here's how, you know, I'm going to take this T-shirt. If you want to know Christ, take this T-shirt, put this T-shirt on that says Jesus. Man, you're in. Hey, I can do that. I'm going to take this T-shirt. I want to put it on. I want to wear it around. Good. Problem. Guess what? It's just external. It's just external. See, the trick and the deception of legalism is two ways. One, it it enslaves those that do know Christ and it deceives those that don't know Christ to thinking they have a transformed relationship with the God of the universe merely because they put the T-shirt on. Hear that? They just put the T-shirt on. Paul says, no. Our relationship with God is not based on these externals. Now listen, it's based on transformation of my entire being. And when I'm transformed by Christ through believing, through faith, listen, I'll do things different. I'll say things different. I'll act different. I'll be different. You know why? Because I'm different. Because of Christ. So Paul said the danger of this legalism thing is it's external. Thirdly, it is pride-producing. Man, the idea of legalism produces pride because here's what happens. When I have any notion that I have earned my standing with God, it will produce pride and a sense of superiority. 
Meaning, if I think in any way the reason God loves me or the reason I've been accepted by God is because I've achieved anything, then in my mind, I'm going to think I'm a little better than you. Some of the meanest. (laughs) Listen, I've had bad church experiences. Some of the meanest people I've ever been around are church people. You know why? Because they have church, but they don't have Christ. And there's no transformation. And what they have is this arrogant understanding of, look what I've done, look what I've achieved, I've got the t-shirt on, I've kept all the rules, God, and it's a yoke, but it causes them to look at other people and go, I've achieved and you had, I'm so much better. And it causes division and pride and arrogance and haughtiness in the church. That's why Paul is so concerned here about this thing called legalism, this performance mindset was in the church. Four and five, really quick. There may be a couple other problems with legalism. We'll move on to the next one. Legalism minimizes the finished work of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, or chapter 2, verse 10, we read it earlier. It says, in Him. I want you to listen to this. Either Paul is, it says 310, it should be 2.10, that's my typo. Either this is true or it's not true that by nature of who Christ is, perfect Son of God, perfectly fulfilling the law, a perfect life on earth, dying in your place, dying in my place, raising from the dead, ascending to the Father, by nature of who Christ is and what He's done, either this is true or it's not. In Him, by faith, you have been made, what's the next word? Either that's true or it's not. The message of the gospel is our standing before God. The way I come to know God, the way I walk with God, and the way I'm secure in Christ for eternity is Christ Jesus. In Him, you've been made complete. I obey. I strive. I do things that Christians do because I've been transformed. Not to bring about transformation. By no work of the law is any person ever justified. There are those that want to continue to saddle the yoke of legalism upon us to appease their own consciousness and because they've never known Christ. And Paul's saying, hey, let no one be your judge and come in and say, well, you're not keeping that festival or you're not doing that right or you're not doing this right and begin to distract from the finished work of Jesus Christ. Fifth problem of legalism, very quickly, is this. Not only does it minimize the work of Christ, it hinders fellowship with Jesus. You know why? Think about it. As a born-again, genuine believer in Christ. Listen, I go to spend time with the Lord. I open my Bible. I pray. I'm talking to God. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, maybe. Maybe I've done enough. Maybe I've performed well enough. God, maybe I've done everything I needed to do today. Maybe I've run away from everything I need to run away with. And again, there's a desire for holiness, and there's a desire for purity, and there's a desire for righteousness because it's Christ in you. But I do not approach God on a regular basis in fellowship with Him based on my performance. Some of you live that way. I mean, you wake up every morning and you think, oh man, I hope I, hope I perform well enough today. 
You lay your head down on your pillow at night and you're rehearsing through the day and you're thinking, I blew it here, I messed up here, I screwed up here. You think, I've got to do better, I've got to try harder. And all that is is a legalistic yoke around your neck instead of rejoicing in the reality of Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you that in you, by believing in you, the transformation in you, I have been made complete. And our life is lived from that, not to gain that. You've got it in Christ by faith, by faith, by faith. It's the glory of the gospel. So Paul says, let no one put this yoke of legalism around you quickly. Let me show you the next two, and these two will be a little bit quicker. He says, so there's this yoke of legalism there. Watch out. He says, number three, he says, there's the threat, number three, is the threat of mysticism. Oh, man, what in the world is that? Well, let's read it, verse 18. He says, let no one, and that continues to be the pattern. He says this over and over. Let no one, let no one, let no one. He says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause in his fleshly mind. Verse 19, not holding fast to the head, that's Jesus, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. He says, let no one come in and defraud you. The word defraud is a very strong word. It means to deprive of something. It means to steal something away that is yours. Fraud, identity fraud, would be someone taking my identity that's not theirs and taking something that's mine. These teachers were drifting in and they were stealing something away from the believers that were theirs. That was theirs. They were defrauding them. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, here's the situation that was going on in Colossae based on what Paul writes here. There were these teachers that were intimidating the believers. They were coming in and maybe they were going into small groups and life groups and maybe they were given platforms and maybe in subtle conversations they were saying things like this. They were sharing these mystical, ecstatic experiences they had been having. They'd been saying, hey, I could tell you what happened to me last night. An angel appeared to me. Oh, yeah. And i got to tell you what this angel told me. And of course, these believers, they're new, they're young, they're young in their relationship with the Lord. And they're like, an angel? Now, in that day, angels were deified in this part of the world. It's not just the angels we're talking about in Scripture. It's this idea of this angelic, heavenly being appeared. So everybody's like, oh, an angel. Yeah. And then, and then here's what they would say. What's this? Do angels not appear to you? And pretty soon, here's what you have. Superior, godly people. Inferior, ungodly people because they didn't see angels. Some people say, hey, I was up on the mountain the other day. And I was praying. And I was talking to God. And this is going to be kind of a silly illustration, but just go with me, okay? And when I was praying to God, I got goosebumps all over me and every time i go to that mountain and every time i start praying i get goosebumps and when i get goosebumps i know it's god that's my test to know if i'm hearing from god if i get goosebumps and they say hey when you pray do you get goosebumps 
ears not very godly. That's kind of silly, but go with me. Paul says, let no one defraud you by these empty visions and these visions of angels that they've had. Mysticism is a subtle trick of the enemy that does this. It is the pursuit of a deeper, higher spiritual experience perceived beyond the realm of the natural senses of the human intellect, meaning it's some supernatural experience that's not common, that really involves the turning off of my mind and my intellect. It usually involves high emotion. It usually involves some type of intuition. It usually involves some type of internal truth, subjective only to me, personalized only to me, sensations, experiences that are outside the realm of the everyday. Now, time out. We follow and walk with a supernatural God, right? I'm a human being and I love experiences. I have emotions. When I worship, I have emotions. I have experiences. I have things in life that I can't explain. There are things that God does in all of our lives that may not be normal and natural. Here's what Paul's warning against, though. He says he's warning against the erroneous experiences that are deceptive. And and he's warning against these things that they're holding out as the norm. And he's warning against basing their relationship with God on what is subjective and individual to the person. He's warning against the people who come in and say, hey, you know it's God if you get goosebumps. No goosebumps? Probably not God. And hey, you're probably not really godly. And we understand that. There's this sense in our lives that we have this desire for the ecstatic and this desire for what is you know, outside the norm. And, and we want God to appear to us in some mystical, ecstatic way. Paul said, listen, these guys are coming in and they're basing everything they say on this ecstatic, supernatural experience. And everybody's listening to them because the angels have talked to them and they've had these visions, but they are unprovable. They are highly doubtful. They have nothing to do with the Word of God. And here's what's really happening. They are slowly pulling people away from the sufficiency of Christ and the objective truth of the Word of God that you can bank your eternity on. And there began to be these divisions and traps in the church. They were chasing an emotion. They were chasing a vision. They were chasing this experience. Here's some problems with mysticism really, really quick. Number one, mysticism makes experiences highly subjective to the individual. Hey, I met with God. God told me this. He didn't tell you that. Listen, you can't question it because God told me. You sure it was God? It might have been Taco Bell from the night before. You don't know. (laughs) Highly subjective. Paul says here in Colossians, verse 18, he says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause in his own fleshly mind. The problem is, you have to remember, yes, as believers, Christ is in us. But man, I still struggle with the flesh. And I can talk myself into anything, can't you? And if I really, 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 really want that new car, then I guarantee I can go to a mountain somewhere and get a sense and goosebumps. And this goosebump is telling me, Mike, you should have that new car. God told me. (laughs) I love it. Now listen, 
You need to understand, you live in a world right now that mysticism may not be called mysticism. But it is a subtle deception of the enemy. And here's the subtle deception. The living word of God is not enough. And if you want to really know God and you want to really have deep communion with God, okay, that's fine. You can have your Bible, but I encourage you to get on past the Bible. I encourage you to go somewhere where you can hear from God and you can get the sensations and you can get the feelings. Listen, I love sensations. I love feelings. I love experiences. But every one of those must be tested by something objective, the Word of God. It can't be trusted. You can't trust Aunt Bessie that told you she had a dream. You can't. Aunt Bessie may love you, but Aunt Bessie's not God. It's highly subjective. Number two, it fosters pride and division, just like legalism does. You know why? Because pretty soon, here's what you have in the church. Pretty soon you have the goosebump people and the non-goosebump people. I'm serious. Listen, we have a unique thing over here because when we meet with God, we get goosebumps. And y'all don't get goosebumps? Well, we're the godly and you're not the godly. And you say, that sounds silly. That happens all the time. All the time. Instead of, no, we all have the spirit of Jesus living within us. We all have the living word of God delivered to us, the objective truth. And we will together come around the word of God given to us. And it is by this we will test everything we sense, everything we feel, everything we hear by what is true. Because to chase feelings and emotions apart from truth, Paul says here, the danger is this, verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, meaning to chase what we feel, to chase what is subjective outside the word of God is to begin to drift from Christ and to begin to chase the goosebump <laughs> instead of Jesus. And man, my day is great as long as I have goosebumps. But if I wake up and I don't have goosebumps, I'm just in the depths. Where are the goosebumps? And you begin to chase the goosebumps. And listen, goosebumps don't transform your soul. Jesus does. Okay? So Paul says, verse 19, holding they're not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, watch this, grows with the growth which is from God. To chase the subjective and the unreliable experience is a false growth and actually stifles your growth and the growth of the church instead of centering your life on Christ, His Word, and what is true. That's what Paul says. Human philosophy, legalism is a threat, mysticism is a threat, my time's up. I'm going to give you the fourth one really quick, and we're going to close. Threat number four is this. Big word, asceticism. Asceticism. What in the world is that, Pastor Mike? Let me give it to you very quickly. Paul says this, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, and that's every believer. We've died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ to the things of the world. We operate in a different kingdom. Why then, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, don't handle that, don't taste that, don't touch that, relegating your intimate, dynamic relationship with God to what you don't do. We continue, verse 21. Which all refer to things destined to perish with use. 
in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement, that means false humility, and severe treatment of the body, but of no value against fleshly indulgence. What? This is asceticism. Asceticism is basically this, and then we'll close. A life of rigorous self-denial in order to earn favor with God. Church has always been plagued with this. Always been plagued with this idea. Anthony, who was a father of the monastic movement, because he felt like it would make him closer to God, and he felt like this is what he had to do if he was really going to walk with God, vowed to never change his clothes or ever wash his feet his whole life. Somehow thinking that that would make him closer to God. Not to be outdone Simon the stylite. Anybody ever heard of him? He was a guy in church history. He was a godly monk who spent the last 36 years of his life on top of a 50-foot pole. You know why? He mistakenly thought that the path to deeper spirituality lay in exposing himself to the elements and withdrawing from society on top of a 50-foot pole. Asceticism. Asceticism. Asceticism is taking the... Elementary things of the world and defining our spirituality by what we don't do. And then elevating ourselves to think, look how godly we are because we don't do. Listen, in pursuit of Jesus, there are things that we will push aside. There's things in the Bible the Bible calls sin. We don't do them because it's sin. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about things that are common in our lives that we say, okay, I'm more godly because I push this aside. And be careful because your relationship becomes defined by the things you don't do and you begin to be very arrogant and prideful because look how godly I am. I'm on top of a 50-foot pole denying myself. Why? Because I'm so godly and I'm communing with God. When Paul says, okay, that's fine if you want to do that. If that is a pursuit of Jesus, awesome. But if it is a substitute to Christ, and if it's something that makes you think that Jesus himself is not sufficient, then you are ensnared on top of a 50-foot pole. You're not walking with Jesus. Okay? Listen, here's the bottom line. We'll close with this. Team can come on up because I know we're short. In all of this, the point Paul is trying to make is Jesus Christ is enough. He has given us everything to be right with God. In Him and in the fellowship of His Word and in the fellowship of His people, the fellowship of the Spirit of Jesus within us is everything we need to pursue godliness and pursue Christ. It is all in Christ. The snare of the enemy will always be a subtle distraction to steer you ever so subtly away from who Christ is and what Christ has done. The summation is, is Colossians 2.10. In Him you have been made. What's the word? Complete. 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 To the glory of the grace of God. What's ours? To walk in obedience. To walk in humility. To walk in dependence. Rejoicing. That we are complete in the purpose of Christ, in the person of Christ. And hey, who gets the glory? Me, because I do all the right things, get all the right things done, or I live on top of a 50-foot pole? Nope. Christ. Christ gets the glory in our lives. If you bow your head with me for just a second, let me pray for you. Our team just begins to play. Right here, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going on in your heart. Our team's going to 
Our team's going to stand and lead us in a song in just a moment. But just before they do that, I want, I want to challenge you to respond to what you've heard this morning. Just right there in your seat for a minute. Just ask yourself a couple serious questions this morning. What am I trusting in right now? Am I believing in Christ right now? Or have I drifted over to performance? Or rule keeping? Or what I don't do? Am I chasing the next experience? Am I chasing the next feeling? Am I chasing the next... And what I'm saying is Jesus is not enough. His word is not enough. What are you pursuing? Is it Christ? Can you rejoice this morning in saying, I am complete in Christ because of faith? Have you believed? This morning, if you don't, haven't believed in Jesus Christ, my, my plea with you this morning is to trust Christ. He is absolutely our all in all. In Him, we can be completely sufficient forgiven, whole, in relationship with God through Christ. Do you know Him? Have you trusted Him? If you know Christ, are you walking with Him, pursuing Him, or have you become distracted by the enemy? I encourage you to respond to God this morning right there as the Spirit of God continues to lead us. Lord, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You that You are absolutely sufficient, Lord Jesus. Nothing we can add to Your finished work. We cannot take away. We stand by faith complete in You. Let no one take us captive with the lies of the world. We love You and we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.